This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. I'm Brian Leiter. I teach uh, jurisprudence, evidence, various law and philosophy related courses. And indeed, the, uh, the arguments from my book that I'm going to talk about today actually originated uh, in a law and philosophy workshop several years ago here at Chicago, which we did on the theme of religious liberty and, and religious toleration. Um, so I'm going to try to speak for only about 20 or so minutes in order to allow time for questions. Um, so I'm just going to be able to focus on a few of the, the themes from the book. But let's, <clears throat> let's start with uh, uh, a scenario, and not a hypothetical scenario, an actual one. Uh, imagine it's the first day of middle school, and a boy shows up for school, uh, seventh grader, eighth grader, shows up for the first day of school with his dagger strapped to his belt. Um, teacher is a bit perturbed by this, notifies the principal, principal summons the boy in, police are called, <clears throat> boy is thrown out of school, the dagger is confiscated since the law typically prohibits the carrying of weapons in the schools. Now, that seems simple and straightforward, but it's not going to be simple and straightforward if the boy is a member of this Sikh religion. In the Sikh religion, boys at the age of maturity, roughly 13 or 14, uh, acquire a religious obligation to carry a ceremonial dagger that is called a kirpan, K-I-R-P-A-N. Um, <clears throat> the kirpan is often a real dagger, right? Um, and it is carried in a, in a sheath. Uh, and often, Sikhs have had to litigate against prohibitions on carrying the kirpan in areas where weapons are ordinarily not permitted. So in an important case in Canada that made it to the Canadian Supreme Court in 2006, Multani, which is a case I talk about in the, in the book, uh, the Canadian Supreme Court said that although there is a general and quite proper ban on weapons in the schools, an exception must be made for an observant Sikh boy who, in accordance with his religion, must carry his kirpan with him. Okay. Now, this was a particularly interesting case of an exemption from a law of general applicability because other Sikhs, including in the same community in Canada where the case arose, viewed themselves as being able to discharge their religious obligation by carrying uh, merely a wooden dagger, right, or a plastic one. But this particular boy, his particular family, his particular community, it had to be an actual kirpan. And the Canadian Supreme Court said, even though we don't ordinarily tolerate the weapons, weapons in the schools, in this case we have to tolerate an exception. Right? And that's where this idea of toleration, why tolerate religion, uh, gets its purchase. Sometimes we ask the law to tolerate an exception or an exemption from a law in order to accommodate the 
religious obligations of certain individuals. Now, here's the, the curious thing which animates the, the concern in, in the book, which is that these kinds of exemptions right, are, with only one exception I'll talk about, only available to those who have religious objections. They are not available to those who have non-religious but conscientious objections to particular laws. Okay? In the United States, this has been settled as a matter of constitutional fiat. The First Amendment protects the free exercise of religion, full stop. The strange thing is, is that if you look at the Canadian Charter, you look at the European Convention on Human Rights, you look at the German Constitution, many other constitutions of Western democracies actually recognize a general right of liberty of conscience as well as a right of religious liberty. But in reality, the only claimants who are successful in getting exemptions, in getting the state to tolerate their deviation from the law, are religious objectors. Okay? The one exception to that generalization is in the context of conscientious objection to military service. All the Western democracies have generally found ways to allow non-religious conscientious objection to military service. Even the United States did that during the Vietnam War, which was the last time we had a military draft. But, and this is quite important, when the United States Supreme Court said that you could have a non-religiously based objection to military service, they decided that as a matter not of constitutional law, but as a matter of statutory interpretation. That is, they presented it as their interpretation of the Selective Service Registration Act. Now, the Selective Service Registration Act actually defined conscientious objection in religious terms. It required a belief in God. And the court just sort of passed that by and said, <clears throat> you could have a conscientious objection to military service without necessarily having any religious foundation for that. Um, now, it wasn't accidental that they didn't make this a matter of constitutional law. If, as some scholars uh, have argued, including Douglas Laycock, who used to be on this faculty and is a graduate of this law school, and a very well-known uh, scholar in the religious liberty area and also uh, an active litigator, um, Laycock has actually argued that the First Amendment of the United States Constitution should be interpreted in such a way that free exercise of religion includes basically free exercise of non-religious conscience as well. Okay? The U.S. Supreme Court has not adopted that interpretation. Why they have not adopted that interpretation is easy to imagine. Because if the U.S. Supreme Court were to interpret the First Amendment that way, then the door would be opened to anyone. Right, to object to any law on the grounds that it offends or violates their conscience. Mm -hmm. Now, the courts don't want to go down that particular avenue, again, for obvious reasons. For one thing, it would generate an enormous amount of litigation, and it would put the courts in the unhappy position of having to adjudicate the, genuous, the genuineness of the conscientious objections at, at issue. Now, this has sometimes happened in the religious liberty context more generally. That is, there was the notorious case of the Church of Marijuana, 
um, which sought an exemption from laws prohibiting the smoking of marijuana on the grounds that the adherents had a religious obligation to smoke dope. Um, the court didn't buy that. They decided it was bogus. They were quite clearly correct. But in general, right, at least with religious objections to laws of general applicability, right, you have a much sounder evidential base for figuring out whether the so-called conscientious objection is in fact legitimate. Because the nice thing about religions is they tend to have texts, institutions. Right? You can figure out whether or not there is genuinely a conscientious, objection, a, a conscientious obligation to carry a curb hand. It's actually quite easy to establish. Even though, as I mentioned in the Canadian case, the particular practices in this Sikh community right, were not the same as in others, but it was very clear that in that community the obligation was to carry uh, an, actual, an actual dagger. Okay. So conscientious objection to military service has been the, the one exception. But the more general phenomenon right, is that if you have a claim of religious conscience, you in many cases may have standing to successfully challenge the application of a law right, to you that would either proscribe or prescribe certain conduct that you feel you can't engage in. If you have a non-religious conscientious objection, tough luck, right? tough luck. So the question I'm concerned with in the book is why or whether we can justify what's basically an inequity, right, an inequality in the standing of religious versus non-religious claims of conscience. Now, we understand what the historical reasons are why religious claims of conscience, right, are singled out, as they are in the American Constitution, uh, for special legal solicitude. Right? These provisions, the idea of religious toleration, grew out of the early modern wars of religion in Europe, in which at a certain point <clears throat> people came to the realization that um, it might be better to put up with religious beliefs and practices of which we disapprove rather than to endlessly try to slaughter each other. Okay? Now, this was, I think, this was the core origin of principles of toleration in the, the Western democracies. It grew out of this bitter experience. It's actually, a, I think, a kind of funny case of toleration. Right? Because when we talk about toleration, right, we're talking about the idea that we ought to put up with beliefs or practices that other people engage in that we disapprove of. Right? But then the question is, why should we put up with them? Right? Why should we put up with them? In the case of the early modern wars of religion, right, the decision was made we ought to tolerate religious beliefs and practices of which we disapprove, but not really for what I would call a principled or moral reason. Right? That kind of toleration is, is what I'll refer to as a kind of Hobbesian compromise. Right? This is after the English political philosopher Thomas Hobbes. Right? And the thought is this, that is sometimes we're going to put up with beliefs and practices of which we disapprove, um, not because we think we have a moral obligation to put up with them, that it's right to let people believe and do things we think are wrong, but rather because we can't get away with suppressing their beliefs and practices without an intolerable cost to ourselves. Right? So Hobbesian compromise is essentially self-interested. We would love to stamp out the heretics. 
but we're not going to get away with it, and it's going to be way too costly, so we're not even going to bother. I think the more interesting question is, what are the reasons for toleration right, um, that are not self-interested reasons, but moral or ethical reasons? Um, and this is sometimes described, I mean, putting this question is described as generating the paradox of toleration. Because the idea here is, on the one hand, you may disapprove of certain beliefs and practices, think they're wrong, and yet think it's morally right to permit people to engage in those beliefs and practices which on its face can look somewhat paradoxical. So what are the moral reasons for a practice of toleration? Well, there are various reasons um, that have been given, but I want to focus on, on just two that I think have been influen influential uh, in certainly in, in American law in different ways, but also in uh, Western liberal societies more, more generally. Right? And these are arguments uh, that are, as it were, best embodied by two significant philosophers of the last 200 years. One is the English utilitarian philosopher John Stuart Mill from the 19th century, um, whose harm principle you have no doubt encountered in criminal law. Um, and the other is a set of arguments usually associated with John Rawls, American political philosopher of the 20th century. And I'm just going to sketch these arguments in very abbreviated form for you. But the point I want to make, and this is the striking thing about these arguments, is these arguments don't single out religious conscience as especially deserving of toleration as against other claims of conscience. Right? So that is, these arguments for toleration don't seem to explain or justify the inequality in treatment of different claims of conscience that our law currently embodies. So the Rawlsian argument, let me give it to you in brief form. Rawls is usually associated with the Kantian or deontological tradition in modern moral philosophy. Rawls wants to ask the question, what would be the principles that would be constitutive of the basic institutions of a just society? And he says, to understand what principles justice would require, we need to engage in a certain kind of thought experiment. He says, ask yourself, what principles would people agree on right, if they were in what Rawls calls the original position? Where the original position is a situation, a hypothetical situation, where people are going to enter into a kind of social contract about how society will be organized. But the crucial thing about the original position is that people are stripped of almost all the kinds of knowledge of their actual situation in society. The idea being that when we're stripped of those considerations, right, we'll make a genuinely fair judgment about the basic principles of justice. If we don't know whether we're rich or poor, or black or white, or Christian or Jewish, or atheist or whatever, we won't be influenced by the partiality of those facts about our identity in deciding what basic principles of justice should be. Right? And Rawls says, now, to be clear, you do get to know some things in the original position. Right? You have to know something about what human beings are like. Right? You have to know what are the conditions that are necessary for human beings to, in fact, live <coughs> successful uh, and meaningful lives. And one of the things you are entitled to know in the original position is that human beings, creatures like us, have a sense of conscience. 
they have a sense that certain things are, as I'll put it, categorical or obligatory, not optional. Right? All of us, whether it's connected to a religious tradition or not, have a sense of conscience, things that we feel we absolutely must do and things we absolutely cannot do. And that piece of information is available to people in Rawls's hypothetical situation. And he says because right, individuals in the original position are aware that they will have a sense of conscience and they will know that their sense of conscience is very, very important to them, they aren't going to want to agree to principles of justice that would involve a gamble that their sense of conscience ended up in the minority and so they never were able to act on it. It was just suppressed. Right? And therefore, one of the basic principles of justice they will agree to right, is one that ensures a kind of equal liberty of conscience for all. That, in a nutshell, is Rawls's argument. You'll notice it's, it clearly encompasses religious conscience, but it's not specific to religious claims of conscience. Now, the interesting thing is Mill, uh, the great utilitarian philosopher, and the, the irony here is, of course, Rawls had written his book, A Theory of Justice, in 1971. And I'm just talking here about the early Rawls's views. If some of you are interested in later Rawls's views, which are totally mistaken, we can talk about that. <coughs> um, don't tell Martha Nussbaum I said that. <laughs> um, <coughs> you can get a diversity of viewpoints around here. Um, Rawls wrote his book as a response to utilitarian moral theorizing. He thought utilitarian theories missed something very important in thinking about justice uh, and moral rightness and wrongness. But on the issue of liberty of conscience, Mill actually arrives at a very similar position to Rawls. But he arrives there through a different set of considerations. So Mill says, um, Mill's a utilitarian, so he thinks the right thing to do is whatever will maximize utility or happiness. Right? Um, Mill is not a Benthamite utilitarian. Bentham thought that happiness was just a matter of pleasure and the absence of pain. He thought all pleasure and pain was essentially the same in character. It could differ in quantity, but not in quality, right? which led to the conclusion that your pleasure in attending this lecture, which is manifest on your face, uh, is essentially on a continuum with the pleasure of drinking good wine, going to a Bears game, listening to music you like. All pleasures differ only in quantity, not quality. Mill rejected that view. He thought there were qualitative differences in the kinds of happiness that people can experience. And Mill then also thought that the discovery of the truth was conducive to maximizing utility or happiness. Right? And this was his key thought here, that we have to discover the truth right, in order to maximize happiness or utility in society. And this means not just truths about the empirical or physical world. Right? It also means truths about how it is best to live. And this is important to remember, Mill thought there were better and worse answers to the question how one ought to live. And I'll come back to that in just, just a moment. Okay, how does the fact that discovery of the truth maximizes utility lead to an argument for liberty of conscience, liberty of speech, uh, and indeed a good deal of liberty of action as well? Well, Mill's thought was this. He says, look, um, <clears throat> Mill was, in philosophical terminology, a fallibilist. 
um, he thought that we could never be absolutely certain that we've got things right. We may have a lot of good reasons for thinking we believe the truth, but it's always possible we're going to be wrong. And so the first point he makes is you won't figure out if you're right or wrong if you always suppress dissenting opinions. Right? You've got to hear contrary views in order to figure out whether what you believe is really true. Now, as a side note, it turns out Mill doesn't really believe that uh, because he doesn't believe it about geometry, and maybe we'll talk about that in uh, Q&A. Um, <clears throat> but Mill says, look, even if your current beliefs are all true, even if everything you believe right now is true, it's still often good to hear false opinions about things. Right? Why? Well, because Mill says uh, you will believe what's true for the right kinds of reasons if you are confronted with false opinions that you then have to refute and think about why do you believe the things that you believe. So it's a kind of way of avoiding a certain kind of dogmatic commitment to beliefs, even if they turn out to be the, the true beliefs. So that was Mill's basic idea, that if we're going to discover the truth, we have to be challenged by opinions that we think wrong, because sometimes they might be right or partially right. And sometimes, even if they're wholly wrong, they still serve uh, a, sorry, I walked out of the screen there. They still serve a useful uh, a useful purpose in forcing us to clarify the reasons for why we believe what we believe. But this extends importantly to questions about how we ought to live as well. Right? Mill thought that, now Mill was also as a matter of general epistemology, his general view of knowledge was that all knowledge comes from the senses, from experience. All knowledge is basically empirical. And he thought we could acquire knowledge of what are the best ways to live from experience as well. In particular, by observing different ways people might live. He called them experiments in living. Right? And drawing inferences about which ways of living were conducive to happiness, being a law student, for example, and which ways of living were not conducive to happiness. I'm not taking a strong position on that experiment in living. But the experiment is available to us. Um, I've been through it. You're going through it. And we can then draw conclusions about whether or not it is conducive uh, to, to happiness. So for Mill, it was very important, not just that there be a significant liberty of belief and conscience and expression, but that there also be a significant amount of liberty for people to act in accordance with a different sense of what's valuable, what's worthwhile, because it produces a kind of evidence about which lives are really conducive to happiness. Now, these arguments are not, these arguments for toleration of different experiments and living, differing opinions and so on, they're not without limits, right? And this is where Mill's famous harm principle kicks in, right? The colloquial expression of it, which you've, you've all heard, right, is my liberty to swing my fist ends at your nose, right? Mill thought that, look, there's a limit Right, to the experiments of living people should engage in. Namely, they can engage in experiments that are going to result in harm to other people. There's a vexed question in a large literature on what constitutes harms, and we can talk a little bit about that. But that, as it were, puts a limit on the scope of toleration. And Rawls actually recognizes a very similar, similar kind of limit. But again, back to my main point, what Mill's argument shows, like Rawls, right, is that there is a reason 
right, to tolerate liberty of conscience. Right? This was, they decided it was a failed experiment in living. <laughs> they heard enough and said, oh boy, this is making me unhappy. <laughs> they, uh, the, the Millian argument, like the Rawlsian argument, is not specific to religious conscience. And so let me just make a couple of brief remarks about the final topic, which in many ways may be the most difficult topic that this, uh, this whole issue presents. If there, aren't good, if there are good moral reasons for toleration of the Rawlsian or the Millian kind, okay, but they aren't reasons that are specific to religious conscience, then what should the law do? Okay. And one possibility I alluded to earlier, right, is we could just have a universal scheme of exemptions for claims of conscience. But as I mentioned, courts are never going to go for that. Right? It's just going to be impractical. But it does seem to me there's another issue here that, that we do need to think about. Um, and interestingly enough, this was a view that was adopted by the United States Supreme Court in 1990 in a case called Employment Division versus Smith. Any of you read Employment Division versus Smith? Right, probably, okay. So let me just describe for you. This was in an opinion by Justice Scalia, by the way. So I want to emphasize that because the, the conclusion is a little surprising. Um, Mr. Smith uh, was a member of a Native American religion that included among its religious obligations the requirement to chew what was in fact an illegal narcotic called peyote. Okay? Now peyote is not like uh, marijuana. I'll just say so I'm told. Um, in the sense that peyote is apparently disgusting. Right? It's, you know, it, it has a narcotic effect, but nobody chews it unless they got a religious obligation to, right? It apparently is very foul tasting. So this wasn't like the Church of Marijuana. This was a genuine part of a religious tradition uh, that had been part of the customs of this Native American religion. Uh, Mr. Smith lost his job um, as a drug counselor, as it happens, uh, because he tested positive for an illegal narcotic. He then applied for unemployment benefits, was denied unemployment benefits on the grounds that he'd been fired for breaking the law. Right? And that's why he's suing the unemployment division. And he wanted an exemption from the law that says you can't collect unemployment benefits if you're fired for violating the narcotics laws. And the United States Supreme Court said in this opinion by Justice Scalia, which has never been overruled, though it's been quite effectively undermined, as I'll explain, Scalia said, there's actually no constitutional obligation to create, create an exemption from a neutral law of general applicability, such as a law prohibiting certain narcotics. And so he decided against, with majority of the court, against Smith. Now, the crucial thing was we're talking about neutral laws of general applicability. All right? That is, this law right, wasn't a subterfuge for persecuting Native American religionists. Okay? The Supreme Court has confronted laws like that. There was a case in the 1980s where a Florida town banned animal sacrifices, defended it on the grounds of concern for animal welfare. Examination of the record made clear completely bogus. The only reason the city council got interested in animal welfare was because a small religious sect 
deriving from somewhere in the Caribbean moved in and they had the practice of sacrificing animals and people didn't like this religion. Right? And so the court invalidated that because that wasn't really a neutral law of general applicability. But Scalia said neutral laws of general applicability, there's no constitutional obligation to create exemptions right, because, they re, because they prohibit conduct that religious believers feel they have an obligation to engage in. That was 1990. Um, it is still good law but not very effective law because uh, there was a very strong backlash against it. Uh, the Congress enacted the Religious Freedom Restoration Act which basically tried to reinstate the prior constitutional standard which said roughly if the law is too burdensome to the free exercise of religion you have to carve out an exemption. Exactly the view that Scalia rejected in, in Employment Division versus Smith. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act was enacted at, similar statutes were enacted at the state level. Various state courts interpreted their constitutions to provide more protection. The US Supreme Court was a little up in arms about RIFRA, that's the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, um, because as those of you who have taken constitutional law will know, uh, the United States Supreme Court successfully claimed for itself 200 years ago the authority to say what the federal constitution means. And they got a little upset that RIFRA was Congress's attempt to overrule the Supreme Court in a constitutional matter. Can't do that. Okay. Can't do that. But they said, in effect, RIFRA can apply to the federal Congress. That is, Congress can tie its hands and say, we won't enact laws that excessively burden religion, and if we do, we want there to be exemptions. But they can't say that's what the federal constitution means, and therefore that's what the states have to do. Anyway, it's a complicated sort of post-employment division versus Smith history. It was pretty successful at restoring what had been the, the status quo prior to employment division versus Smith. Question to think about, maybe Employment Division versus Smith was correct. And what I'd like you to think about, and I think it's, it's becoming a particularly vivid issue, certainly in, in the Western United States, exemptions to neutral laws of general applicability do often shift burdens onto other people. Right? I mean, if it's a just law that serves a legitimate purpose, sometimes when you create exemptions from the law, it harms others. The dramatic example that we now see in California and Washington are exemptions to mandatory vaccination schemes. So measles has made a comeback. Whooping cough has made a big comeback. Now, partly I think these, the mandatory vaccination scheme exemptions are granted much too casually. Right? Indeed, in California, being California, you can get an exemption if you have a philosophical objection. Okay? Not, not just religious, so there you can have a philosophical objection, but it doesn't actually mean you have to, as it were, write a book to explain your objection. You just check the right kind of box. Exemptions to laws of general applicability are not without cost to society as a whole. Right? Some exemptions are. Some do not shift burdens onto other people. Some exemptions shift a lot of burdens. And so my own view, which I argue for in the conclusion of the book, is that something a bit closer to what Scalia was getting at in Employment Division versus Smith was probably a sounder policy with respect to neutral laws of general applicability and subject to certain caveats like the laws really do promote the general welfare, they're just laws and so on. If they're unjust laws, there's all kinds of reasons why people oughtn't to obey them, but that's as it were a talk for, for a different day. Okay, sorry, I went a little longer. I'll stop here and invite your questions. Thank you.
you explain sort of the self-interested reason or reasons for tolerating religion, um, and, and then I don't know if you wrote off those um, self-interested reasons and went on to sort of the moral reasons, but yeah. what about the, the argument that there is still a self-interested reason in, in modern society for tolerating reason, religion, which it might be that religious people create a lot of positive externalities in the society, in which case tolerating religion is in one's self-interest. Okay, good. So, yeah, two things. I didn't mean, um, I didn't mean to write off Hobbesian compromise. Right? Hobbesian compromise is often very important, and sometimes it's the best we can get. Right? And the upshot of the early modern wars of religion was a kind of Hobbesian compromise, and we can all say thank God for it, right? because the prior 30 or 40 years had been horrendous. Um, what I did want to say is that um, it's a more secure basis for toleration if the reasons for toleration are not Hobbesian ones but moral ones in the sense I described. Because the thing about toleration when it's basis is only Hobbesian compromise, is that if one group gets strong enough right, that they could actually get away with suppressing the beliefs and practices they disapprove of, they will. Right? And so in that sense, Hobbesian compromise is always a little vulnerable, as it were, to the changing fortunes of the different groups that are, that are in competition. Um, now, Religious groups um, and religious believers sometimes produce positive externalities, um, to use that awful language of the economist. Um, and they sometimes produce negative ones, too. So um, I, and I, I talk a little bit about this in, in the book. right? I mean, it seems to me the fair thing to say right, is not the sort of you know, the, the Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens line, which is religion is always wicked. Right? That's not very plausible empirically. But the flip side isn't very plausible either. It seems to me the record is mixed. Right? The record is mixed. Sometimes religious institutions, religious communities are literally on the side of the angels, and sometimes they're not. Right? Um, so I don't think uh, you know, considerations of that kind are going to, to get us very far. And you'll notice that the arguments for toleration that I described, the Millian and the Rawlsian arguments, right, don't turn on whether or not right, people's conscientious obligations are in fact produce positive or negative externalities. The negative part may matter because it, it implicates the harm principle at, at a certain point. But the right to liberty of conscience doesn't depend upon your conscience producing the morally best outcomes or the best outcomes for the rest of society. Yeah. Is there a set of, like a certain rubric that courts use to distinguish, you know, what is a religion from what is not a religion? Because you just sort of presented the extremes. We have the church marijuana, you know, no book, no established churches versus Judaism, 5,000 years old, that has a book. Yeah. Um, so, so, <laughs> Yeah, so you're quite right about that. The, the, the court, the, the U.S. Supreme Court, but this is not atypical, uh, has resolutely avoided defining religion. 
okay? I have not. I have a whole chapter in here about that. <laughs> Partly because I think if you want to ask the question whether the reasons for toleration are specific to religion, you have to have some view about what, what religion is. But the courts, to go back to your question, have avoided this. And they have avoided it partly for a kind of, you might say, establishment clause reason. Namely, the court shouldn't define what religion is. You might think that's partly what religious institutions do. Okay? Um, but the real reason is, is because it's hard and they don't want to tie their hands right, uh, too much going into the future. So what they typically do is they do a kind of reasoning by analogy, for, or reasoning by analogy to some paradigm cases. So the bottom line is, the more it looks like Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, right, the more likely you are to prevail. Okay? Um, and that's usually how it goes. But it tends to be very sort of incohate. Okay? Now, in the case of the, the, the church of, of marijuana, right, it was, as it were, it was just all too transparent, right, you know that there wasn't <laughs> this, you know, they couldn't point to the sacred text from the 14th century, you know. I mean, it had obviously just been cooked up in order to bring what was a specious legal challenge to laws prohibiting the use of, of marijuana. Now, the, the U.S. Supreme Court's official position is whether you have a colorable religious objection to a law does not turn on whether your religion is one of the established or recognized religions. It turns on the sincerity of your religious commitment. That's what the court said. Right? So officially, right, that would get the court into the business of adjudicating sincerity of belief. Okay? Now, since we don't have very good tests for sincerity of, of belief, right, you can't quite observe it, what the courts really do is it turns out that the sincere religious objectors always have religious beliefs that look vaguely familiar, right? Even if they aren't necessarily a member of a particular Protestant denomination, it's always the case that the ones who win are ones who have beliefs you can sort of recognize as, yeah, that's a little bit like this, uh, this aspect of, you know, Episcopalianism or, or whatever the case might be. But you're quite right, they do not define religion. They do not. Can you talk a little bit about what your definitions were in your book? <laughs> okay, so um, I'll give you the very quick version of it. Um, I think that claims of religious conscience are distinguished by uh, having three characteristics, right? The first characteristic they share with all claims of conscience, namely that um, the believer has a sense that there are certain categorical demands he or she must comply with. Right? Certain things that must be done or must not be done. Right? And of course, that's why conscience and religious conscience can come into conflict with, with the law. Now, I should say, I think most religious believers in the United States right, don't actually treat most of the demands of their religion as categorical. I think most religious believers are actually, shall we say, casual. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I think it's the dominant form. And that's why, you know, so if the law says you can't do something that happens to conflict, many religious believers say, well, you know, I don't want to get in trouble. Okay? This is why, by contrast, a lot of the religious liberty litigation in the United States, not only religious liberty, involves Jehovah's Witnesses. 
because Jehovah's Witnesses are not casual, right? They take the categorical demands very seriously, and they're not interested in what the law says. If the law, man-made law, conflicts with their religious obligations, they're not going to do it. Okay. So, but that doesn't distinguish religious conscience. I think there are two other things that are crucial in thinking about religious claims of conscience. Right? One is that I think it's characteristic of all religions that at least some beliefs, and I emphasize some, not all, that some beliefs in the religion are taken to be, as I put it, insulated from ordinary standards of reasons and evidence. And what I'm trying to capture here is the colloquial idea that in all religions, some beliefs are held on faith. They're not held on the basis that they satisfy ordinary standards of you know, evidence from regular life, like you know, perceptual reports are generally veridical. It's reasonable to believe the you know, auditorium is full of students and so on. Right? And, you know, and the sciences involve a kind of systematization of these ordinary standards of evidence. It's characteristic of religious claims of conscience that at least some beliefs, not all, but some beliefs, are taken to be insulated from those kinds of evidential demands. And then the third characteristic is that I take it all religions have at some level a concern with some of the doctrines, some of the beliefs, right, and the institutional practices are concerned with what I call existential consolation. Mm-hmm. Um, Seems a shame to bring this up at one in the afternoon on a nice sunny day, but uh, everybody in this room will be dead at some point. Um, everyone will suffer. Everyone will suffer loss. Right? And all religions in various ways try to speak to the need to console and reconcile people to the unhappy and inescapable facts about the, the human, human situation. Right? Um, You'll notice that there's no part in this definition that has anything to do with deism or belief in God. And I think that's a non-starter. It's a non-starter because one of my assumptions is, uh, and here I share the court's approach, right? If you come up with an account of religion in which it turns out Buddhism or Catholicism is not a religion, something went wrong, right? Now it's just a stipulative definition. And the problem is, is Buddhism right, does not involve theism or most forms of Buddhism do not, okay? So uh, theism is, a complica- is, is not really, I think, a relevant constraint. On the other hand, Buddhism shares with other religions the characteristics that some of the beliefs are held as a matter of Buddhist faith and not because right, they're insulated from ordinary standards of reasons and evidence, right? So Buddhists believe in reincarnation not because there's powerful empirical scientific evidence for reincarnation, but because it's part of the way that we conceive of the nature of the universe, our place within the universe, and sort of what the goals of life are right, within uh, Buddhist religion. Reincarnation is interpreted a lot of different ways in Buddhism, so I'm glossing over a lot of, uh, a lot of differences. So that's, that's the short version. Do you think there's a principled or qualitative difference between exceptions for military service and other legal obligations? Yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons that courts have found a way to recognize non-religious conscientious objection to military service um, is because uh, military service does indeed impose uh, more serious burdens uh, than certain other kinds of laws. Right? 
the law that says you can't chew peyote right, is not as uh, burdensome as the law that says you have to serve in the military and kill other people and risk being killed, killed yourself. That's probably what has prompted the courts, together with the recognition that some people have conscientious objections to military service that aren't specifically religious um, in, in character. Um, you know, now, even in the United States, in, in the wake of these court decisions in the late 60s, early 70s, that interpreted the Selective Service Registration Act to encompass non-religious conscientious objection to military service, conscientious objection was defined in a kind of funny way. The only conscientious objection to military service that counted was a conscientious commitment to pacifism entirely. All right? And so that meant that you couldn't, right? and now in a way this just seems very strange, seems not to make any sense of, of how we ordinarily talk, right? you might have a conscientious objection to the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and not have a conscientious objection to fighting World War II and defeating the Nazis. Okay? But that kind of nuance of conscience doesn't have any legal, legal standing in the United States. So you had to establish a conscientious commitment to pacifism, opposition to all war. Right? And then, interestingly, there evolved right, sort of protocols for how you did that. Right? And so advice would be given to people. Right? Write lots of letters to the editor. Okay? Show your involvement in pacifistic movements. Right? Join organizations where people in the organization come and testify, yes, John Smith always came to our pacifist meetings, right? and, and so on. So in a way, it was, again, the courts were looking for some kind of evidential base for making a determination as to whether someone's conscientious objection to war was a genuine objection of conscience as opposed to just right, self-interested opportunism. Okay? Because we wouldn't create exemptions from laws for self-interested opportunism for lots of obvious reasons. People would stop at stop signs in Hyde Park even less than they presently do, right, <laughs> if there were those kinds of exemptions. Yes. Yeah. yeah in a very interesting paper of yours, you compare and contrast uh, Socrates and Nietzsche. You say Socrates is the father of the Occidental philosophy and he believes in truth, right. whereas Nietzsche new, very important figure, doesn't believe in truth, but in competing values. So would you think that religion should, could be described as a value? And do you use niche uh, in your book to give you an argument in one of the other direction? Okay. So I don't want to risk derailing this entirely into a discussion of Socrates and Nietzsche, as interesting as I find that. But we, we can talk about maybe that um, uh, independently. Um, uh, here's how Nietzsche does actually, though, figure in this book, um, which is Nietzsche held the view, which I think is correct, and I think is a, points out something that John Stuart Mill didn't quite notice, which is that um, uh, sometimes it's very important to believe things that aren't true. That falsehood right, is often an essential condition of life. Right? Um, so it's very helpful right, for me to believe that you are all enjoying this talk, whatever the truth is, right? Because if I held the correct belief, God forbid, right, I might not be able to go on. 
There's a psychological literature, right? There's a psycho it's a slightly contested psychological literature, but there's this literature about the extent to which people accurately understand how others perceive them. And there's a lot of evidence that suggests that the people who have the clearest perception how, of how others perceive them are all clinically depressed. Right? In other words, a certain level of misunderstanding about how you are perceived may really be essential part of sort of ordinary functioning. And, and the reason I bring this up, and it comes up in the context of the book, and this is again in response to sort of the, the new atheist types like Richard Dawkins and Hitchens and, and Sam Harris and so on, is they tend to argue in the form, well, religion involves false beliefs, therefore it has no value whatsoever. And that seems to me just manifestly a non sequitur. I think that's something Nietzsche understood. That is, whether or not you think particular religious beliefs are true or false doesn't settle any of the interesting questions about the value of religion, the reasons to protect liberty of conscience, and, uh, and, and so on. So, yeah, in the back. In the Smith case you referenced, uh, the court said that Congress uh, wasn't obligated to carve out exceptions uh, that, to laws that may affect religion. Uh, but might it violate the Establishment Clause if they choose to do that? Okay, good. So, uh, sorry, what, what the court said there was that the, the courts don't have to carve out an exception for the law, right, in order, uh, in order to protect the free exercise of religion. Now, different question, your question, could Congress, right, carve out such exceptions? Well, that's what they did with RIFRA. They basically said, we're going to enact laws but if it turns out our laws burden free exercise of religion, then unless it can be shown that there's no other way to accomplish the purpose of the law, right, that's roughly the standard, I'm overstating it a little, um, then there ought to be an exemption granted. Right? Now, uh, one could ask whether that violates the Establishment Clause. As the law presently stands, the answer is no, it doesn't. That, uh, that, the, that the, ch the constitutional challenge to RIFRA was not an Establishment Clause challenge. It was rather that the court was, that the Congress overstepped in its authority in purporting to say what the First Amendment really meant as applied to the states. But as I said, many of the states did the same thing as the Federal Congress. They enacted state-level RIFRAs that basically constrained what the legislature could do to bring it back to sort of a pre-Smith exemptions regime. Um, well, I think the, the simple answer to that is it's very difficult to enact constitutional amendments. Um, and, the, and there was an argument, right? They tried to make an argument that uh, it was constitutional even as, even as applied uh, to the, the states. This, Douglas Laycock, who I mentioned before, actually wrote the original legislation Riffer, and he thought it was constitutional, but the, the court, as I said, didn't, didn't buy that. And as I say, it wasn't surprising. But remember, that the, it, it is not a requirement of the text of the United States Constitution that the Supreme Court has the final say about what the meaning of the, the Constitution is. Right? That is just a practice that has become entrenched and is now pretty widely accepted. 
every now and then someone makes some noise about it, but so far it's, it's, hanging, on, it's hanging on pretty well. But I think that's the main reason, is they wanted a quick response to a decision that was thought to be very hostile to, to religion, notwithstanding that it was written by Justice Scalia. That didn't give it a free pass, right? There was a real uproar after Employment Division versus Smith, political uproar. Yeah, if one of the, the primary concerns with exemptions to new, uh, neutral laws of general applicability is that uh, there's instances where they'll impose a cost on society. I mean, the example of the California of the vaccine, I think, is a good one in that regard. But there, there also seems to be examples where that's not the case, and the, the Smith case is probably a good example of that. Why don't we just measure the costs on a case-by-case -case basis? It seems something that wouldn't be terribly difficult to do in yeah. many instances. So my own view is actually closer to that. And this, so this didn't come up in Smith. But it seems to me that as a matter of equality, anyone should have the right to challenge on grounds of conscience a law and seek an exemption if the exemption is not a burden-shifting exemption. Right? And I think it's important to emphasize that a lot of decisions are not burden-shifting exemptions. Smith might be an example, but I, I think there's even easier ones. I mean. My favorite example, you know, and this, this really does come up, you know, every state has a law that when you're photographed for the driver's license, you can't have any headgear on, right? You can't wear something on your head. Why? Because the purpose of the photograph is to make you identifiable. Now, um, Sikh men, uh, Sikhs have an obligation to wear a turban, which, which isn't quite right. They have an obligation not to show their hair, so the turban serves that, that purpose. Right? Um, Orthodox Jews right, will wear a skull cap. But it's not like this headgear, as it were, interferes with the purpose of the law. So to permit an exemption in cases like that right, doesn't seem to shift any, any burdens onto, onto others. A lot of exemptions, I think, are of that, uh, that character. Um, the problem is, is that some of them some of them are not, right? So the current challenges to the, the Affordable Health Care Act requirement that insurance cover contraceptives, right? And, and put, put to one side the question as to whether, right, one can really have a conscientious objection to insurance plans funded in large part by the employees that provide services that the business owner objects to, right? Put, put that aside, okay? So it seems to me that's one of, one of the issues here. But that's a case where the exemptions are going to shift burdens. Right? They're going to shift real burdens onto the employees of companies that want access to certain contraceptive services and won't, won't be able to get them. That's where all the hard cases come, because a lot of these exemptions do, do involve precisely that kind of problem. Yeah. Yes? Building on that, uh, what would you say to the response that instead of granting more exemptions, rather abolish the law and offer incentives to behave in that way. And then if someone doesn't want to, they just don't need incentive. Yeah. Well, look, so if that were sufficient, right, then um, we might use that in lots of contexts. But I think there's a reason the law sometimes opts for prohibitions, right? Um, and the prohibitions, of course, they come with their own incentives as well. <laughs> Namely, if you violate them certain consequences uh, befall. It, it might work in certain contexts. I agree, it's, it might work in certain contexts. Um, 
there's also, and, and you see this actually with exemptions to military service in, in other countries which still have mandatory military service. Um, you know, so there's the evidential question, how do you tell whether a conscientious objection is genuinely conscientious and not just opportunistic? Well, one thing a lot of legal systems do is if you want to opt out of your two years of mandatory military service, you're going to have three or four years of civilian service. Right? And that's a way of, as it were, putting a price on the exemption that is intended in part to sort out who's really thinks this conflicts with their conscience versus who would just prefer not to serve in, in, in the military. Good timing. Okay, we'll stop here. Thanks very much. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.